people need ordering principles. Twelve rules. What is the reverse reverse uh, intro? Okay, try and do you. Hello and welcome to Twelve Rules to Watch. Uh, my name is Alex, and I'm joined as ever with. Um, uh, hello, I'm Sam. <laughs> yes. Extraordinary, extraordinary. And today we are going to be talking about um, fascist feelings, um, and uh, generally feelings more generally. Um, and this is a, a, it's a full whack episode, but it's also uh, based on uh, our uh, first chapter of our upcoming book with Dog Section Press. Pre-order is open now. The crowdfunder will be in the show notes and along with some other useful links as ever. Um, well, in the chapter, we talk about how um, how how people are, are kind of uh, created uh, in capitalist society, um, particularly with reference to this idea that we are all kind of becoming, which is quite a common, common argument amongst certain parts of the radical left that everyone is kind of being turned into um neoliberal kind of um mini businesses of one and if you your hobbies become extra side hustles that you can make money on um any kind of mental health crisis is a failure in your kind of uh, ability to achieve um and we we discuss this kind of in this framework we discuss how fascism both exists within that acts against it and uses it to some extent to reproduce and create their um, their particular uh, movements and groups. Um, and I, I think it's important to, to say explicitly why we start with feelings. Out of all the things to start with in, in the chapter, why, why, why we start with feelings? And I don't know, maybe you could um, just quickly explain. Because when people think of politics, they think of decision making or they think of when people think of activism they think of things that happen demonstrations opposition counters leafleting whatever and what we never really discuss or at least what is left to kind of some kind of subset of analysis and of of like political activity is the feelings that go into all this and the um um, and the um, you know the kind of effective bonds that build up and the role of feelings and emotions in our political lives. Um, I wondered what do you think is the uh, general role of emotion in politics? That's a big question. Uh, what is the general role of emotion in politics? That's a gosh. And um, I think that I'm not sure I have a general account. I definitely have an account of why it's important on the far right. Maybe I can give you that and then I can see if I can abstract away from that. Um, I think it's also very important on the far left as well. In part, and this is going to be very controversial. And uh, Alex was saying earlier that uh, he likes doing episodes where it's just the two of us <laughs> because we say insane things. <laughs> and then uh, we don't feel kind of constrained by our, uh, our guests. And then we have to go back and edit out the insane things. Maybe this is one of the things that will be edited out. I don't know. But... In some ways, the feelings that motivate people on the far left and on the far right at absolute bottom are not that dissimilar, right? They're not that different. And I think that the main thing that they're not, the main way in which they're not different is that the sense that there is something profoundly wrong in the world is quite a particular sense. And I don't think it's actually a sense that most people have. Most people do not regard the world as like, in some sense, fundamentally inadequate. 
maybe they think there are, obviously everyone agrees there are problems with the world. That's pretty straightforward. But like no one thinks, or like very few people actually believe that there is something profoundly wrong. And I think that is shared with people on the far left and it's shared with people on the far right. And maybe this is also quite a controversial point, that mostly that sense of a a wrongness of a falsity or like a uh, inadequacy to the world is not cashed out immediately into some sort of particular problem. I would say that maybe even the feeling of their, that wrongness exists before its political articulation, before it has any kind of particular political content. That's not to say that critique or that um, our sense of the world being somehow wrong or needing to be changed or needing to be like transformed is strictly subjective or individual or these kind of things. I think it does relate to objective reality. Obviously, I am not politically neutral here. Uh, of the people who I am describing, I'm, I think, on the far left of those people. Um, so I am definitely among those people who have the, has this feeling. And I think that, so I'm not saying the feeling is just like mere kind of whim, mere kind of subjective um adolescent, uh, to use a kind of a, a controversial word again, um, kind of rejection of the world. But it is, um, I think it exists before its own political articulation. And in that sense, when we think about de-radicalizing people on the far right, the struggle I think is not so much the struggle to make them think that the world is okay, but to change and allow them to transform the way in which they articulate that wrongness. So this is why you get loads of centrists who are like, we will do counter speech and we will tell people that it is wrong and it is racist to post racist memes. And that's just nonsense because the centrists do not have this, I think, profound sense that something is wrong in the world. And so they are unable to get to that problem, to get to the sense of that wrongness and allow a different articulation of it. All they're dealing with is the thing above that, which is the thing, the political articulation, they're like do not post those memes and so on. Oh, I think just quickly on that, on the radicalization thing as well, I think it's really important to think about what different political positions mean when they say de-radicalization. So when you have like kind of a, 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 a when you have a kind of liberal take on de-radicalization, it's, it means basically means bringing things back to the center of politics. So this is where, um, this is where the kind of discourse of anti-extremism gets articulated most strongly. Like all that matters is you were away from the mainstream rather than what your the actual content of your opinions are. And so it's it, here you get the kind of it's equally, or at least it's also bad to be on the far left as it is to be on the far right. And what we need to do is bring people back into the acceptable um, realm of centrist politics, which is electoralism, pressure groups, lobbying, this kind of, um, you know, very standard political tactics, uh, not the kind of organisation of a mass of people to exert power in communities or in workplaces, for example, which is a good thing that everyone should be doing. Um, or conversely, bad thing that no one should be doing, organising white people to stand up for their white race and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you've got this kind of similar, sim it's not necessarily equality of of um, opinion, because almost if you read the kind of these kind of centrist reports about extremism, they almost never say that. They always do acknowledge that the far right is doing more 
is, is worse generally, but they also position militant anti-fascism in the same realm. And in, in that in that framing, you have people like Andy No and people, um, other kind of right-wing grifters who are able to create this kind of critical race theory, anti-far boogeyman, who um, they can be, that can be permanently counterposed to the fascist and in, in, in so doing deflect um, concern about the far right. Um, what we're talking about with de-radicalization is really the, the process of making people not fascists anymore. And um, and then what happens after them after that, of course, is we, we do want, we do not want them to do people to just kind of be subsumed back into being miserable with life and feeling alienated from people around you. We want to organize people into, into doing something about the world we live in. Um, and so it's a, it's a different, I think it's two different framings in the in this kind of radicalization sphere. Yeah, and I think that this is, going back to the kind of original question, like this is the reason why feelings are so important, because it's the re-articulation of the feelings. It's not, we're not saying the feelings are wrong. We're not saying get rid of the feelings of there being this wrongness in the world. But we are saying that they need to be re-articulated. I think that's, that's really important. It should be said that for all this kind of like, equating of the uh, far right and the far left that I've just done. <laughs> it should be said that the feelings are in some ways actually quite different. Um, I don't think, for example, that um, hatred in the same kind of way, um, maybe they are, maybe disgust is a less intense feeling um, on the far left than it is on the far right. I think that's probably the main one that I would say is different. Definitely fear is in common, fear of totally different things. And we will talk about, I think, we talk about ecofascism a bit later, about the ways in which, if you think about, if you, if you look at what, for example, this is take a really obviously really extreme example. If you look at what the Christchurch shooter wrote about in his manifesto, he essentially equates. I mean, he directly equates. I'm not. This is not uh, some sort of overreading. He literally says, um, "Change and overpopulation as the same thing," because in his mind, the fear that I think people on the left have about climate change, justifiably so is simply articulated differently on the right. The same kinds of apocalyptic fears of a world that is doomed, of a world that is rapidly falling apart, and there's nothing that you seem to be able to do about it. These are feelings that are shared by those on the far right, except that they're shared and they're articulated in a totally different way. So where I might say, you know, I'm terrified about climate change and about the, well, I'm also terrified not about climate, just about climate change, but also about the political consequences of climate change, namely ecofascism. But I'm particularly scared about, um, but, but on the far right, these are articulated as I'm scared about climate change, as in I'm scared about the destruction of the white race. And it's only by going back to the feelings, by thinking about the, how those feelings are const constituted and how they're constructed, that we can see that these two articulations have something in common. And I'd say that not just to be provocative and to say that the left is basically the far right and to horseshoe theory and so on, obviously not. But to say that there is somehow, there can be, I think, something of a kind of common ground here. <laughs> not with people who, not with any of the political articulations, but with the underlying sense of wrongness. And I think only the far left is able to engage the far right sense of that overarching wrongness. Let's talk about... Um some very some very specific feelings that we see uh, we see that are kind of very that like kind of part of the common internet parlance especially in places like 4chan 8chan and how they relate to the past and past fascist movements 
So we've ident- in the book, we kind of identify a few emotions that are specifically attached to the far right. Um, things like loneliness, alienation, despair, anger. Um, I think what's what's really key about these things and what the internet specifically has allowed in in the kind of articulation of these fascist feelings, as it were, is that in the past, without without any kind of clear form of mass expression, people would be uh, uh, sitting. The people were still lonely. People were still alienated. People were still depressed and despairing. But they didn't have a have a means of connecting with other people, also feeling that way. There was no kind of way of experiencing this feeling with other people in almost in real time as you post. And so people sat in their basements or their bedrooms and they felt really bad. And they sometimes, you know, did bad things because of those feelings. Um, But they didn't have a way of uh, engaging with other people feeling the same way. And in in the Internet and specifically in the kind of forms of social posting that we see rise up in the 2000s um, they have a way which we put in the book of of kind of collective self-isolation or being alienated together and making that feeling of alienation a primary feeling of the uh, message board you are on Um, and I think it's here where we see um, the the kind of the very basic beginnings of um, a form of specifically internet far right, uh, a form of internet based far right politics, which is its own thing, separate from uh, kind of past movements. And of course, that's not to say that in like the uh, the National Socialist Party or any of the kind of adjunct semi affiliated party organizations, there weren't also feelings of disgust and anger. Of course there were, but there were also kind of more positive, I suppose, feelings of uh, comradeship and solidarity and uh, kind of um, like everyone pulling together to, uh, you know, uh, purge um, other other people um, off the, out of society. And I think we're just starting to see the first steps towards a kind of IRL um, form of that kind of um, uh, martial comradeship thing happening. We see things with the base, we see things with these very small, um, very racist groups. Um, we even see things uh, in, in, in the DFLA where we have the kind of football casual culture being uh, kind of uh, used as a vehicle for this kind of feeling of uh, everyone together acting as one on the street, expressing our feelings. Um. It should also be said that the DFLA is a very uneven organisation. So although the Chelsea Cantatists were kind of kicked off a march um, by them, they, they are a seriously racist group. Like, it's not like they're just kind of uh, civic nationalists. I mean, the, the Chelsea Cantatists are um, ethno-nationalist racists. Uh, that's not in question. Um, lots of them have <laughs> quite, you know, uh, neo-Nazi tattoos. This is not like a uh, a trivial organisation. It's certainly not one that's um, so mild. Um, but yes, by and large, there's a, there's a, there's a massive spectrum even within that organisation because it's so broad because it's a mass mobilisation. All right, let's talk about something more particular in terms of what kinds of aspects of the world are subject to a certain kind of emotional reading by the far right. 
And principally, the one we talk about is consumption. So, uh, and particularly what we call compulsive consumption or compelled consumption. The feeling, and I think everyone has probably experienced this at some point or other, the feeling that you are not only um, consuming something, not necessarily even buying it, but consuming it. I mean, there's lots of free content in the world. Uh, in fact, most of it is free content. Uh, and so there's a, yeah, lots of lots, lots of free content, videos and so on. Um, uh, social media, obviously. But also for the far right, I think particularly kind of emotionally resonant is porn. It's a highly, highly gendered form. It's a, it's a mass experience that people have been having for uh, 20 years. It's a kind of a, an extraordinary experiment in, um, in like transforming sexuality over a very, very short period of time. I say that not in order to imply that uh, the rise of the porn industry is some sort of conspiracy. <laughs> we will get to that exact belief in a moment. But it is a, it's kind of mass experiment, it's mass transformation, and maybe people understand sexuality or, or engage with sexuality. That does several different things at once. One is that it produces um, forms of compulsive consumption. Um, hence the popularity of spaces like NoFap and so on. And particularly the popularity of those things on the right, on the far right. If you, would you like to, would you like to quickly explain uh, the, okay, so the, the thing no that is no fap. No fap. Okay, so fapping is masturbating. No fap is not doing that. And deliberately not doing that as a kind of a program of abstention in order to wean yourself off pretty dramatically, pretty kind of straightforwardly off pornography. And this is particularly true for young men, many of whom I think probably feel like pornography has taken over their lives or dominated their lives in some sense. And they've there's a kind of this tension in contemporary society and on the demands of men in particular, I think, which is on the one hand, a demand that they produce themselves as ultimate entrepreneurial subjects, working 20 hours a day, um, never sleeping, uh, working out and, um, you know, drinking kind of like uh, you know, five pints of coffee a day, uh, you know, all, all this kind of stuff, right? It's kind of this really insane kind of worker workaholic kind of a workerist or not workerist that's the wrong term <laughs> kind of entrepreneurialization of 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 uh people in general but i think particularly seems to me aimed at young men and the other side of this is that the forms of consumption that is forms of uh, enjoyment pleasure and so on that are broadly available things like gaming um watching sport um masturbating uh, pornography and so on and so on and so on, going to the uh, pub and so on, right? The, 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 these are these are all forms that are not just forms of consumption or enjoyment, but also forms of kind of wasting, wastage. Um, you kind of expend energy on the feeling of pleasure itself rather than simply enjoying something. They're all like highly exertive forms. Um, you, as so a like work kind of saturates not just the space of, of, of productivity, but the space of consumption as well. And also there's a feeling, I think, of a, an internal tension between these two things. On the one hand, enjoyment, which is made, uh, which you feel kind of guilty about, which you feel kind of bad about. And on the other hand, um, productivity, which you are, which is demanded of you uh, as, the, as the social um, security net and so on are stripped away. And so you get this kind of tension between these two poles. Um, and the question is, 
how does the far right manipulate the structures we find in this tension? So the forms of experience we find in this tension, the forms of remuneration and payment that we find in this tension, and so on. So in this context, something like pornography, and maybe let's even be more precise, something like OnlyFans becomes a quite like an important kind of component or feature of the far right. So I should just say what the, the far right believe about OnlyFans. So by and large, they seem to believe that OnlyFans is a kind of a way in which the moral order of society is degraded and destroyed. Um, it's a way in which women are rendered um, into kind of sex workers, right? Or as they would say, whores, right? Like it's, it's a way in which women are, are their moral uh, upstandingness is, is destroyed by the profit motive. And of course, they would, many people on the phone, although not all, would regard that profit motive as um, being intrinsically somehow Jewish, right? Because they're anti Semites. And at the same time, it does that to women, but at the same time, it also degrades men. It makes them um, stupid, uh, beholden to women, beholden to the power of um, women's sexuality, and it is like kind of so kind of easily accessible and so on. So for, for young men, I think on the far right, the temptation of OnlyFans or the temptation of pornography is something for which women must be blamed. And so in this sense, through the logic of consumption and production and the kind of the, the forms of enjoyment that are available in contemporary society, through that, that logic or through what is kind of merely what is kind of profitable or mass marketable and so on, a particular kind of misogyny re-emerges. So it's not just that misogyny is some sort of like age-old belief, although it obviously is that. It's not just that it's kind of lingering in society, but that the most up-to-date contemporary forms of capitalism, by producing this kind of dimorphism, this kind of gendered separation between um, the kind of the figure of the seductive woman who dominates you and the kind of the powerless man who um, is a cuck or a simp or a white knight or, you know, any kind of uh, like bunch of fascist terms basically mean um, a man who uh, pays attention to women. By producing this, this dimorphism or this, this, this split between the two, between the genders, it seems on the far right that women dominate society and therefore a new form of misogyny is produced. So on the one hand, both age-old and also up to the minute. These emotions about various things that are not, they're not particularly unique to the far right, they just take a particular potency on the far right as well. I think that's really important to say. But anyway, how does this kind of this kind of uh, a view of pornography or the consumption of pornography, how does that then uh, feed into the far right, especially far right on the internet? Because of course, um, I guess suppose people in the DFLA, just to, for that's our go-to wee lad street example of the far right. It, it, to be fair, it does have the word lads in its name. <laughs> <laughs> the pornography is not particularly a factor. They're kind of like normal Islamophobic people who just happen to post on Facebook quite a lot. Like they're not like proper freaks in the sense of, you know, people on 4chan <laughs> or, you know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. It's also uh, a generational it, thing, right? Exactly. And so 
how does this kind of dynamic with specifically with pornography but also with other forms of consumption so you see in the meme we talk about in the book of the kind of someone who's let his like uh, um, consumption habits his uh, hungers um, take to him you know he's, he's, he's bowed he's submitted to them he's he's eaten too many pizzas he's you know not he's living in an awful basement etc etc all this stuff how how is this transformation um from awful horrendous cooked to use that term slob transformed to gun hurting identitarian clean shaven uh, activist yeah i think i think because the forms of consumption that are available take away porn i mean you, you listed them really well um it's no it's no surprise that um one of the main crops to be uh really accelerated in its production over the last 40 years is soy right this is just like unbelievable explosion in the soy market um and the figure of what's called the soy boy on the far right which is um essentially a kind of a feminized uh man you may have seen these memes of people kind of going uh open-mouthed uh elation and so on at you know um like getting a nintendo switch and so on. This is a very common meme. People would unbox Nintendo Switch and have this kind of like <gasps> overwhelmed um, reaction to it. And then they would post selfies of themselves in this kind of uh, open mouth dilation. And you've, you've probably seen, you know, you know what I'm talking about. So I, I just want to read a section because it comes directly to uh, what Alex was just saying there. Um, Fascists portray their enemies' enjoyment. So the enemies being the, the left and the soy boys and so on. I wouldn't say that the soy boys and the left are the same thing. Um, fascists portray their enemies' enjoyment of the commoditized world as effeminacy. Their hatred is channeled into the open mouth elation of the soy boy. The fascist understands himself to be pushing against this form of stupefaction and the soy boy's excessive, gray, undifferentiated happiness in commoditized triviality. The kuma, a variant on the generational boomer and zuma archetypes, is someone who has let themselves go given themselves over to pleasure and lost all ability to think for themselves or to make distinctions amid the onslaught of dopaminergic commodities. In seeking out only what gives them narcissistic pleasure, the soy boy and the kuma grade themselves out into the background of the world. This grayed out enemy is the contemporary figure of the last man. So the, um, the idea here is that there's a kind of a resistance to commoditization or a resistance to the trivialization that commoditization brings. Um, this is one of the ways in which I would say there was a correlation or like a kind of point of convergence between the left and the right. But <laughs> I would say they, they, they cash it out very, very, very differently. So, so, for, so for the far right, rejection of triviality of the modern contemporary culture and of consumption habits means a reassertion of, and we should probably state this plainly, yeah. for all the talk of left and right, right, is a reassertion of a traditional uh, nuclear family in which a, a, a man has power over a woman and over the children in a very hierarchical household, control of the finances. The image of the, I mean, the figure of the trad wife here is really important. It's a submissive uh, home uh, housework-centred um, uh, being who really has no agency. Uh, they they um, uh, want to return to a relationship in the land which is fundamentally racist, which is founded in a certain group of people who they uh, designate as white to um, be uh, only be allowed in a particular area. And 
a particular country, nation, and everyone else to either be uh, subordinated to that race or to uh, be expelled from that land. Uh, and uh, they, uh, there's various variations, but there's also return to a, a more disciplined society, a one in which uh, class is uh, much more reinforced. The, the kind of the, the gross um, liberal mutants are at the bottom and they're doing the coding jobs and the, you know, the shelf stacking and the, and the uh, service provision and the, the, the supermen, the master race are free to, you know, lord it over the rest, over the mutants. And this is the kind of image of the return to the, the, the this is a tradition, the image of, you know, return to the tradition in which they, they, they kind of luxuriate. Um, the left is extremely different in what it wants is, oh, you know, uh, the liberation of women, gender equality, the end of imperialism, the kind of uh, dissolution of, of borders and countries. Like these are not like, uh, these are not, these are basically entirely imposed aims. And we should, we should, as we come to the end of this episode, we should uh, definitely acknowledge that, I think. Oh, it's for sure. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I totally agree with that. I'm, all I'm saying is that like, I think that there is a substrate, a really basic substrate of feeling of wrongness that share, is shared by the left and the far right. And my point was simply about um, centrist attempts to do uh, de-radicalization work, which focuses exclusively on the expression of uh, bad political ideas and it misses this underlying feeling of wrongness and um, that the left I think is more probably likely to be more successful in de-radicalizing people because they are able to articulate that wrongness differently and the reason why the wrongness is sticky is because it's true there is something profoundly wrong with the world it's just not what the far right thinks it is I wanted to kind of go back to what Cynthia was saying there about the mutants and mention a theory, which is quite like uh, popular, it's, uh, advanced by a guy called Spandrel. Um, and the theory is bio-Leninism. <laughs> bio-Leninism. So the, the idea is that um, the left is not um, the organized working class, but the left is the amalgamation of all of the failures and all of the particularly, this is why it's a bio, all of the biological failures. So women are regarded in this theory as intrinsically a biological failure. So are people who are not very bright. So are people um, who have disabilities. So are people, you know, all these different kinds of categories of people. And these are the people that the left is constituted by. And some it's like the left is understood in this theory of biolinism as the kind of the pressure group of the failed, the pressure group of those who have failed, um, and failed for biological reasons as well. It's kind of interesting systematization of all the things we were saying before about the relationship between biology and failure and so on. I want to say something else about the figure of the trad wife. So I mentioned earlier, this is tension between productivity and consumption on the one hand. And it seems to me that the trad wife, again, is a figure that is very contemporary and contemporary for a particular reason, which is that it's not an attempt to overcome the tension between product productivity or the demand that you be productive or the, and the demand that you consume. It's not an attempt to overcome this contradiction, but it's simply an attempt to align the consumption back into the productivity so that 
when you are consuming, that is when you are enjoying yourself, what you are enjoying is racial reproduction, <laughs> uh, to put it very bluntly. What, 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 what you are enjoying is a kind of productivity by rejecting pornography and accepting the trans wife. I think what people on the far right are doing is trying to render their enjoyment itself productive. Right? And in doing so, resolve the contradiction between productivity on one hand and consumption on the other hand. What am I talking about? I, I, what are you talking about? I don't know. Um, Do you want me to say something equally insane just to like... Yeah, yeah go, for it, go for it, go for it, go for it. Um, <laughs> I, can, I literally can't think of anything that's not cogent and on, on point. I'm sorry. I tried, I tried, but I can't. Just Everything in my head just straight fire, you know. <laughs> I'm going to read you the first bit of the feelings chapter. There'll be an audiobook version of this book, um, which will come out. Uh, when the book is published but if you want to get a copy of the book now you can go over to our pre-order page which is in the show notes why care about fascist feelings first because that's where the radicalization process begins each chapter of this book articulates a stage of the process through which feelings and emotions mutate into fully formed political movements without the later stages Fascist feelings might never become politically important, but without those initial feelings of inadequacy, hate, or alienation, and without their continual replenishment, the far right wouldn't have the purchase it does now. Second, although all political movements have an imaginary, fascism is particularly prominent, so prominent as to often seem like it's its principal driving force. This is not because fascists are particularly imaginative, but because lacking a material basis for their politics, such as class struggle or the struggles of the oppressed, fascists instead think in terms of quasi-mythic imaginary forms, always metaphysically clashing in a realm of pure strife, its images deeply freighted with feeling. And third, it's also here that the de-radicalization process can begin a process we'll discuss in our conclusion. Capitalism produces people. You, me, everyone you know. It works on and through all of us, moulding us into the people we become just as we mould it. Capitalism today does not produce people like it did in the 1920s. Its requirements and possibilities have changed. The capitalist subject of neoliberalism can be characterised as the achievement subject, a self-exploiting kind of personhood, subsumed in an endless flow of images, tending nowhere in particular, but always alert to the possibility of increasing its personal value. Those who do not make themselves into productive components of the general accumulation simply have not tried hard enough. Because some must therefore fail. Failure is built into the production of people. Failure is treated as aberrant, but in class society, it's structural. When something fails reliably, we can say it has a failure mode. Fascism might be seen as a failure mode of capitalism. It's one of the many ways in which the underlying capitalist impulse to reproduce the conditions of accumulation might mutate and survive under crisis conditions. Similarly, we could think of a fascist 
as a particular failure mode of capitalist people production. But because the capitalism of the 21st century is not like that of the 1920s and 30s, so the fascism of the 21st century will not be the same. And likewise, the production of fascists, those who desire and build fascism, has also changed. Perhaps the most sympathetic possible account of some fascists now is that they desire an end to the inanity of life under capitalism. As the organization of life by capitalism ever deepens, fascism takes positions on more and more aspects of life that seemed outside the realm of politics. However, its syncretism and totalizing scope exist not because of the breadth of its imagination, but because of its systematization of all the brutal techniques of discipline and social control. In this sense, fascism is capitalism's bleeding edge, but temporarily displaced. Its regressive and reactionary content, which it presents as revolutionary, is operationalized as the doomed and violent defense of the social life liberal capitalism attempts to transform. Fascists rightly reject the order of the present, but they do so spurred on by a false view of a lost, masculine, racially homogenous past. They desire not the end of the system built on misery and brutality, but the redistribution of suffering back towards nationalised, racialized, and gendered others. A radicalization of politics that ends up affirming the most brutal and conventional parts of capitalism's alienating logic, but only for those others. We will return again and again to this normie radicalism, this militarized articulation of the burning core of the present. Fascism feeds on crises. After the First World War, the crisis seemed total, military, political, social, and economic. But it was also a subjective crisis, a masculine crisis. In male fantasies, Klaus Terrelite begins with the memories of the Frikor. Here, intimacy with women is not merely shunned. There is more in play here than simple prudishness or questions of morality. We are dealing with the warding off of a threat, Terrelite writes. Terrelite suggests something that perhaps remains true. With far-right feelings, the warding off of a subjectively consuming sexual relationship is foundational. But now, masculine failure is more variegated. It produces diverse and complicated feelings. Hatred, a passionate need for as well as fear of intimacy, a disgust for what is uncontrollable or unfamiliar, a feeling that everything lacks potency, lacks force, a feeling that the world has been degraded, a suspicion that power is against you, a listlessness a lack of clarity, and a feeling of being outside the world, a blind rage. Although this failure can be specific, the example, for example, of the failure to protect our girls, so potent for the Democratic Football Ads Alliance, or DFLA, but more often it's a broader failure to become subjectively meaningful at all. On 4chan, and other tributary cultural formations for the contemporary far right, feelings of subjective failure are ubiquitous. For most of early 4chan, neets, those not in education, employment or training, dropouts, 
stereotypically dwelling in their parents' basements, formed the self-conceived community. Compare, pathetically, these quotidian scenes to the foundational crisis of masculinity for Fricor, losing the First World War. For the far right today, even failure is degraded. The more lackadaisical the young man, and it is mostly, although not entirely young men, becomes, the more he fails by the social standards, the more he hunts for the singular pursuit, the singular strategy that will make him vital and whole. The route out of this failure finds its forms also in the quotidian. Fascist narratives of overcoming are not so different now from self-help literature, except that they can also accommodate the urge to kill and to die. They fixate on the non-productive parts, the weightlifting, the personal grooming, and leave out the productive parts, like studying to get a better job. More importantly still, they tie the young man into a mythic community and tell him that he is failing because of some other thing elsewhere, something to fixate on and hate. And to take his place in the mythic community, they tell him he must be prepared to fight. These narratives of self-improvement contain just enough death wish, just enough self-hatred to justify and explain the amplifying social isolation and anonymity that becoming a fascist on the internet requires. Although it's a theoretical mistake to start with the isolated individual, self-isolation almost necessarily precedes radicalization, and the internet has created mechanisms for potential fascists, again, the rejection of intimacy, to self-isolate together. The project of becoming a true man must be both thought and enacted. It is not enough to merely watch the news and feel hatred, although that is what the far right largely do. That is why militarism forms such a strong emotional system for the far right. It contains the necessary vitalism, order and adjacency to death as well as, crucially, a certain degree of mindlessness, of giving up thought. Militarism is woven into the fascist imaginary. The opposite of total masculine failure is the fantasy of the martial life. One common meme depicts a before and after to this transition. Before, an overweight fedora-wearing man with Richard Dawkins and Sargon of Akkad posters and a Keck flag on the wall, living in a city in a filthy room. After, a clean-cut man seated at a desk with fields visible through the window, an AR-15 assault rifle, an Agli's rune flag on the wall, and a generation identity sticker on their computer monitor. The transition here is not from normie to hero, it is from alt-right internet debater to heavily armed rural eco-fascist. Civic nationalists often idealize the military as a foundational aspect of society. Many of their core concerns revolve around the betrayal of serving soldiers or veterans by the state and the left. The UK civic nationalist wave that took up much of the 2010s, the English Defence League, Tommy Robinson and the DFLA, started with the outrage against the small Islamist protest of procession of soldiers returning from Iraq. The pan-European generation density organized training camps where recruits were drilled in martial arts. The US paramilitary group, the base, 
boasted of the military and intelligence connections of its personnel. Talk on its Discord service, a private web forum, was densely woven with military acronyms and phrases. However, for fascists, the state that controls the military is degenerate. And militarism is distinct from the military. Western armies are today distant from political power and moreover strive to merely technologically dominate their enemies. As opposed to the experience of the First World War operationalized by the Nazis, the image of the military today is high tech and unerringly precise in action and thought, a far cry from the more direct forms of masculine potency. Indeed, Ernst Junger, whose celebration of military life substantially influenced the fantasies of classical fascism, decried the distance and technological complexity of modern war as undermining personal heroism. Militarism nevertheless expresses the violent truth of the world liberalism has sought to obscure. Everything competes for domination. Although atomized, the fascist subject has its crowd, or its pack, the swarm, often organized, at least rhetorically, around militaristic values. It is fealty to this community that comes to define fascists' lives. Radicalization into the group is a process of immense emotional depth, and for many, escaping from the far right is complicated most of all by having to give up these emotional attachments. Joining such a group requires other ties to friends, family, and colleagues be broken down. These groups are not all alike. The smaller the group and the clearer its structure, the more it opposes itself to society. Whereas marchers on a DFLA demonstration can imagine themselves as the voice of a substantial demographic now lost or submerged by a political correctness, the medium-sized groups such as Generation Identity imagine themselves to be restoring a kind of naturalized masculine subjectivity that has been eroded by the left. They organize for the return of the potent man. Further to the right, among the black-pilled neo-Nazis, these groups are almost entirely defined against the norms of society and undergo quasi-rituals to enforce the separation. From the declarative anti-Semitism of national action to the intergroup murders of Atomwaffen, the principle of these acts is, we are absolutely different. We can never go back. 12 rules. Yeah, it is.